The Nerdalogs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy based on shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Try to keep your stories around five minutes, laugh at jokes, cry if appropriate, and applaud everyone who has the guts to sit here, tell a story, and come out as a nerd. Hey, it's Tom, it's Bob, from the office down the hall. Good to see you, buddy, how you been? Things have been okay for me, except that I'm a zombie now. I really wish you'd let us in. I think I speak for all of us when I say I understand Why you fucks might hesitate to submit to our demands But here's an FYI You're all gonna die screaming Time I know where 
as hell And we'll put this thing to bed When I bash your head open All we want to do is eat your brains We're not unreasonable I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes And welcome to a special in-studio episode of the Neurolog Presents Your Stories Podcast. Today, I'm joined by four of the five directors of Core Res, a really special and excellent Chicago theater company. Uh, they're going to close out our month of End of the World stories, which is perfect because, guess what? Their next production is about the end of the world. Uh, before we get to the stories, I want to mention that this Friday, August 24th, the Nerdalogs will be hosting a special superhero bar crawl throughout Wicker Park. Uh, we're going to meet at 7 o'clock at Quimby's Bookstore on North Avenue and make our way through the neighborhood that assholes like to call Chicago's Brooklyn, <laughs> ending at the excellent Emporium Arcade and Bar. There is absolutely no cost to join us except for, of course, the cost of you drinking. Uh, and you have to dress up in some kind of superhero or comic book or otherwise amazing character costume. Now, there are prizes for the best costumes. Uh, I'm donating the prizes. They're actually kind of cool. And we're going to be very liberal with why prizes are given out. So, come hang out with us on Friday and win free shit. It's that simple. Uh, now it's time for my plea. Guys, do you like this show? I mean, do you really like this show? Uh, we like you. If so, please consider throwing a few dollars our way to help cover things like web hosting. And honestly, time invested in putting this together because it does take a lot of work. Um, we have a donate button on the side of our homepage at yourstories.podbean.com that makes it easy to give through PayPal if that's your bag. Uh, and any amount helps, seriously, any amount helps. But either way, we are super thrilled that you're listening to the show. We hope you enjoy this and we hope you continue to do so. Hey guys! Welcome to a very special episode of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories. We are doing uh, an in-studio, in air quotes, episode, which we've only done really one and a half times before, I think. Uh, we have very special guests today, a group kind of sort of related to the Nerdalogs through uh, sexual scandal and, and writing partnerships and such. Oh man, uh, I need another beer. <laughs> Uh, this, this is uh, Correz, which uh, there's no one to clap in this episode, so I'll, I'll do some clapping. Yeah, Correz. Yeah. Um, it's just that full of it. <laughs> so Correz is uh, is a group that puts on full scripted play productions, but born out of improv comedy. So how about we go around and I'll introduce you guys, or you can introduce yourselves, or some mix of the two, and uh, then we can talk a little more about what it is you do. So on my left we have... Hi, I'm Allison McWilliams-Brooks. Uh, I'm a writer for Corez, and uh, one of its founding members. We all are in this room. 
founding members. That's not true. <laughs> well, all no, of us, but all of us being interviewed. <laughs> and we'll skip you. Yeah. But we'll get to you later. Hi, I'm Jeremy Connie. I uh, I help produce and help write Corez shows. Um, beside me is oh, I'm Bobby Hoffman, founding member, writer, fight choreographer, carpenter, etc. Kind of like Jesus. Jesus did most of those things. I think he can choreograph. Run his on Jesus knew Kung Fu. Uh, and next comedian, calling me Jesus, is... Julie Pearson. Uh, I am the, I suppose, resident director thus far. Um, I've directed both of the Chorus shows, and uh, also an editor on the scripts. Now, do you find that your residents mostly say in line, or do you have to write them up a lot for, like, violations? <laughs> College humor. Oh, oh, so. yep. I went to arts. <laughs> um, so you've heard Allison and Jeremy before if you listen to this show. Uh, Allison, I think, last appeared on the sex episode and uh, talked yeah. about lessons for a dorky girl in a sex-crazed world, which yes. is an amazing story. Jeremy's way back in our second episode. He talked about uh, Leilapin and stealing his teacher's prize mug. Man. Uh, I also should introduce the, the ghost in the room, uh, guest appearance by another Nerdalogs member, Alex Talavera, hey. who you guys probably know. Hi, He's only here because I live with him. Yeah. <laughs> Scandal. In like a romantic way. Most of the time. <laughs> you heard it here first, even though they're already engaged. And Alex has talked about it. Yeah, on this very podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, um, so what, uh, we're doing this in August, which is uh, Nerdalog's End of the World Month, and that works really well because your next show is about the end of the world. It's called Armageddon Pie. And that's most of what I know about it, so why don't you guys talk a little more about that? Sure. Um, I think first, uh, what I'd like to mention is the meaning of our name as a theater company. Uh, Core Res means the heart of the matter. So when we were looking at show pitches for our next show, that definitely was part of the reason that we chose this show, which is about... Well, we had a day called Pitch Fest, where we all brought in ideas, um, starting way, way back in the beginning of the show. And it was almost a year ago. Which was almost a year ago. Almost yeah. a year ago. And we found kind of this running theme of the end of the world or dystopias or yeah. um, just major events concerning not just a community of people but the world as a whole. And turning that inward on itself and, 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 and making it how that affects a small group of people. That was... Oddly enough, a running theme in all of our pitches. And to bolster what Allison said, uh, our name reflects what we like to do with our content, specifically, mostly in the realm of comedies. We haven't branched out into dramas, we love to do comedies, but if we're going to do a comedy, we want to talk about what's real, life, you know, the heart of what beats in all of us. So we sat down after Pitch Fest picking... I think we sat between a couple of ideas and picked Armageddon Pie and sat down to say, all right, if we're doing the end of the world, what would that really be like for someone? Not like the president, not like army chiefs or NASA chiefs, like just regular people. What would it be like if one of us was stuck in the end of the world? And And if And if that end wasn't necessarily specific, like we're not... Our our show isn't about a zombie apocalypse or necessarily about global warming or nukes going off. The, 
the actual catalyst for the end of the world is relatively unknown. Um, so how do people deal with that when they know that the end is coming, but they don't necessarily know what it is or why it's happening? It's a single location play set in a small town Midwest diner. Again, not a script because we wanted it to be representative. Um, and just what these people go through when they're put in a circumstance that's global, but the view on it is very, very small. And then what happens when you're stuck somewhere with people you maybe haven't talked to that much or don't know that well, and sort of how does that bring you together as people? I think that was another thing we really wanted to understand. Yeah, like how, how do the ways that we know each other affect the ways that we're able to cope with something like that? You know, someone you know in your town and you've, like, heard rumors about them or there's knowledge that you have about them that they don't necessarily know that you know, like, what gets raised when tension is high and what kinds of things become unimportant in the face of something that's so huge. Mm -hmm. And if I may, I'd like to talk a little bit about the process of how we get from start to end of a play. Let me set you up. Yeah. Uh, so, chorus members, what what <laughs> would you say your process is like from getting to the start of a play to the end of it? He's a pro. It's long. He's it's great. a long yeah. process. It's a very long process. Well, it's April Staples is twenty four yeah. weeks, roughly twenty four weeks of process. Yeah. What we pride ourselves on is being a very unique theater company, in that we try to take the best of both worlds when it comes to the magic of improv in terms of idea generation and having people come up with a big idea as a group and combine that with the structure and reliability of writing, which I don't see too often in the Chicago area, uh, if any. And I am very proud of this group of people because we try to meld those two things. So is everyone in your group an improviser in some sense? All yes. the actors at least, yeah? Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many senses one can be an improviser in. <laughs> well, we definitely... In the sense that we're improvising this conversation right now. <laughs> but we, we have... We look for a similar balance in our cast as we have, I'd say, in our company members where um, there, are, there are people in our company who come from a much heavier theater background but have also done improv, so can you know they can appreciate the concepts that are that are being worked with in the improvised stage, but have so much wider of a knowledge base when it comes to actually producing a theater show. And then there are members, you know, like I include myself in this uh, group of people who have done theater, but come to the group with a much more heavy improv background. And I'd say our actors are probably split among that as well, because we've found that it's it's absolutely vital to know the basics of improvisation, or, and and to actually probably be beyond the basics to, to be a competent improviser. But it's incredibly important to be a good actor as well, just to streamline the process as far as... <laughs> Yeah. When Julie has to start working with them on a theater level, but also so they can appreciate the layers that go into creating characters who's, who are real people. So are they cast for a character before anything is written for that character? 
Yes. Yes and no. Kind of. Yes and no. We have a yes we, start, we start with a basic skeleton or, or An archetype, story archetype. Yeah, mm-hmm. basically a basic archetype. I think when we went into this one, we, all we had really was, okay, we want it to be the end of the world. That's not super specific how it's ending, and we want to be in a diner, and then we had some ideas of types of people that we wanted to see in the diner, and then based on um, based on the auditions and based on sort of how we felt about um, the, the ensemble that we were creating, we assigned everyone to a really short archetype. Mm-hmm. You know, just about a sentence to work off of, maybe an age range that they were playing in, and then everything else we discovered from there. And that is the choice we made for this play. Mm-hmm. Because we were doing a single location cast as all in the same area for a while, end of the world sort of situation, we thought, these are the types of people we want to see. But that may change for the next idea. We mm-hmm. open, in comparison between last production, Get Strong, and this... We opened up the process to actors a ton. Mm-hmm. Where, where in Gastrong, our last show, we had a huge amount of structure put in place and definite characters. Now we've gone to, yeah, just do this kind of character and we'll direct you along the way. Next play might be even more loose. Well, and that really fits the form. I should have mentioned that Gastrong was a kind of rewriting slash parody of Beauty and the Beast. So you already had your characters picked right. out by Mr. Walt Disney. And we already had mm-hmm. most of the music written as well. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we had so much structure there in place already before we had a cast. So this is not a parody of, of uh, Armageddon. No. And no. it is not it's a parody not. of American right. Pie. It is no. not. No. It is not. No. We, um, we did mm. view all <laughs> We did make our actors read scenes from Armageddon for their audition. This is a true story. But not from American Pie. But not from American Pie. And you can blame me for that. There are only a few (laughs) blue jokes. I I I came up with a name, but I that was just what I had to start. Well, where I'm really going with this is how many times you incorporate either Armageddon by Def Leppard or American Pie by Don McLean in your show. <laughs> Would you um, say more than five, five, or still, lots more than I'm five? Say five. <laughs> I'm still banging out the five. soundtrack. Um, okay. But, but definitely now, five. Okay. Five. We're committed to five at this point. <laughs> All right. I'm and it, it, leans, it leans more heavily towards Def Leppard, of course. Yes. But. Okay. <laughs> The word levy may or may not appear in this book. <laughs> and it may or may not be dry. <laughs> yeah. All right, good. That's hard-hitting journalism. That's, that's what I like. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to say? I mean, obviously, we get to, like, at the end when it opens and all that stuff. But is there anything else you feel like you need to get out about that? The basic, the basic process is uh, we get all those people that we cast um, together, and they kind of improv through scenarios for eight weeks. We record all of that. Um, Audio or video? Video. Both. Video, yeah. Um, we were, we you think you're better than that. me? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Please proceed. That's, that's DVD bonus content right there. Um, but then we take, we take all of that, and for the next eight weeks, we write a script out of it. Uh, we give them the script, and then for the next eight weeks, Julie tries to um, pound the cast into you know making it a scripted theatrical show. So how long does it take you to go through all of the recording and be like, yes, this oh, is God. good? 
Well, <laughs> so long. A long time. The writing process, I'd Thank say, you to Bobby for a lot of that. is for me, obviously, as a writer, is the most difficult part of the process because um, in Gastron, it was very difficult because we had certain points that we had to end up with in the script just because it was a parody piece. And I was expecting it to be so much easier this time around, um, except that without any original source material, everything you're writing has no basis point except for the improv. And our actors were so amazing in the improv process. There was so much material to work with. And what I found difficult was not coming up with things for the characters to say. It was trying to put in as much as is humanly possible of the amazing material that they came up with while also making a coherent story and um, and honoring the characters that they created. And I really hope that they're pleased with what we did um, because obviously in the interest of creating a more cohesive play, we had to include stuff that wasn't in the improv. We had to cut stuff that was in there. That was the hard part, yeah. I think, was cutting things. Um, yeah, this this whole process had a level of communication between every side of the um, production team that I think that I think Gastron did, where we were able to sort of meet as a group, you know, during the improv process and say like, "Hey, let's let's get more of this thing, or let's go in this direction." Um, and so that's a really that's a really cool thing. Is just I mean, and this this process is still so, still evolving so much in terms of um, how we approach it because it is it's a huge undertaking to do something like this um, to try and fit a whole theater rehearsal process into a, you know an amount of time that's usually more of an improv rehearsal process um, and and everything. But um, but just being able to sort of communicate back and forth and, and shape the process as it happened was um, was such a huge asset I think to this particular um, this particular group and this particular process. Something I would like to um, say is that our process gives improvisers and actors in a play a lot of responsibility and a lot of opportunity. More so than actors in a regular stage play. Because from start to finish, these characters are theirs. Every improviser makes their own character. We direct them, we shape them to what we think the play needs, but every improviser's, every character in the play is somebody's. So let's bring this back home to Nerdalogs. This sounds a little like Dungeons and Dragons. You guys are the dungeon masters. That's yeah? True. That's true. <laughs> That's actually really That's true. a great That's analogy. Very, very cool. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we try and lead them through the perils of a process that we're still familiarizing ourselves with. But when they, but plan. they, but they throw tools at us exactly. that we never even anticipated. We have a you plan know? and we have a story we want to tell, but sometimes they make moves that we're not expecting, and that affects the whole play, affects the whole game. And there's a lot of hot elf chicks. Oh yeah, in general. so many in elf chicks. <laughs> well, I am going to your show at least <laughs> one and a half times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That sounds super cool. And if there are any actors slash improvisers out there, probably around Chicago. You guys should maybe try out for their next show. But first, we have this show to deal with. And first, before that show, we have this show, The Nerdalogs, Your Story. <laughs> so, um, the four members of Corres here have each written their own kind of end-of-the-world monologues, which they are going to share. And it'll be a little more like, I guess, of a round-robin kind of open sharing than a normal show, because there's not 30 people here. There's just six. So, five. No, six. I'm really bad at this. Um, 
So we will start with Allison. Tell us about the end of the world. So I never really cared about the end of the world that much. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I definitely cared about environmentalism. So, like, I cared about it to the extent where I wouldn't litter and I would, you know, kill a man if he did. But I didn't really necessarily care about what happens when the world ends. I, I mean, I guess I had kind of that vain arrogance of the young generation in thinking that there's no way it would ever happen in my lifetime anyway, so I wouldn't really have to worry about it. And now that more and more global warming stats are coming out, I'm vastly rethinking that concept. But I think... I was thinking about this the other day, and I was trying to figure out why, being such a nerd as I am, had I never really thought that much about the end of the world. Because I think that's a, it's a huge theme in nerd culture. And especially, you know, comic books. I mean, I love Age of Apocalypse. I, I love that nice. whole, you know, arc. And I, I think philosophically I find it interesting. And, and I was one of those kids who was like, I was very Christian when I was a kid growing up. And then, you know, I had a cliched falling out with God in my 20s and, but even in my mind, it was never like, I never saw the end of the world as like much of a religious thing. But then I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this show, and I was thinking, but like, really, why didn't I care that much about the end of the world? And I think it's because by the time I was like 17 years old, I was fairly certain I was going to die alone. And, you know, I sort of took it upon myself in this like, like, rebel mantle kind of thing, you know, like, I loved that episode of Firefly where Mal Reynolds, you know, like, Inara says to Mal, she's like, oh, you don't have to die alone, and he says, everyone dies alone, you know, and, like, the first time I saw that episode, I was like, yeah, all right, totally, I totally believe that, and then I was like, well, do I believe that, or do I just believe that about me, and I just really for a long time thought I would die alone. I didn't date too much in high school. Um, me and my uh, older sisters, my three older sisters and I were all very dorky specimen. Um, you know, lots of mock trial and science Olympiad <laughs> happening. Um, in one of my other nerdologues uh, monologues, I mentioned that my sister Lisa and I once had an entire AIM conversation in Shakespearean English. <laughs> so that gives you, like, a pretty good concept. It's framed in my bedroom if you want to read it. Um, but I didn't have a lot of luck with guys in high school, and that luck only continued into college. Um, I dated my RA briefly. Terrible idea. <laughs> and I did end up having a boyfriend my senior year of college who broke up with me on Valentine's Day. So that was all rather depressing. And then I moved to Chicago and, of course, ended up dating improvisers uh, for about two weeks at a time or whatnot. Um, so about two years ago, I had definitively decided I'm just going to die alone. I'm going to end up alone. I'm going to be the, the, like, aunt in my family who's, like, really fun 
and has lots of cool shit in her house because she's not spending it on her children because she doesn't have any. Because she never got married. This is a character from the um, show. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a character in our show who very closely resembles how I thought of myself at the age of 24. Um, but it didn't depress me. Like, I wasn't really sad about it. I had just come to accept it. I was like, there are some people who just are alone in their lives. And they, they live alone and they die alone, but that doesn't mean they're not filled with community and, and, and happy things and, and cats. And I just pegged myself as one of them. And then I met Alex. Oh, and, what? like, totally fell in love and moved in with him and got engaged. And so now it's like, I'm not going to die alone which is a really new concept for me. <laughs> and, like, when that thought first occurred to me, I was like, oh, this is great. Because, like, if the world does end, I'll have someone to, like, go out Titanic-style with me, you know, old couple in the bed who just let themselves drown. And I was like, that's really sweet. And that would be great. That would be really great to just, like, do a full-on <laughs> notebook, both die the same night, if it happens to be, like, when the world's exploding... Cool. Like, so then it was like, oh yeah, I still don't care about the end of the world, but at least I'll have someone there with me for it. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized, no, now I have to care about the end of the world. Because if the world ends, that means that the person I love is going to be gone. And since I'm not, like, overly religious anymore, I don't know if I'll get to see him after that. So, now I'm, like, trying to decide what to do with myself as far as recognizing that now I have a vested interest in the world continuing to exist uh, and presumably be the boring aunt who does spend all her money on her kids because she actually has them. So I don't know where I ended up with it. All in all, I think I'm about still half not caring and half caring. I'm sure I'll end up caring more once I have kids, it seems likely. And I guess now I have to, like, vote and shit so that <laughs> I can help keep this world running. You didn't vote before? Of course I voted. That was, <laughs> that was just a humorous cap to my monologue. Yeah, she recycles yeah. now. Yeah! You know what What makes me think I'm going to dial on this Louis on FX? Louis! That show yeah. is just so brutally honest. It's like, oh yeah, we are all going to just be, you know, dirt for worms. Yeah. But, uh, so I feel you on that. I feel you on the cool ant thing. Yeah. <laughs> I really want to... I'm still going to be the one who gives them gum. It's fine. I'll be cool. I think it's very important. I can't... Every time she, she's told me that this was her thinking before, that she thought she was going to die alone... She was 24 when she decided, eh, that's probably it for me. I'm never going to find somebody. I had 24 years of experience you gave to up back me up. really easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy to do that, though, in a culture where, like, I mean, I don't know. Jeremy and I, we have mostly the same friend set. Three years ago, it was the marriage year. This year, it's the oh, baby year. My you God. know, it's like... That's all right. The divorce year is on the way. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That'll show him. <laughs> 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 Yeah, that's and it. It feels like it. 
it peaks and just still keeps going because there's still marriages happening, but the baby year is definitely peaking. Mm -hmm. Well, but that is exactly what happened to me when I was 24. By the time I was 24, everyone I knew from high school who I still kept in touch with was married. Mm-hmm. And most of them had kids. Yeah. And to be fair, I will say most of the people I went to high school with are Mormon, so it's not, like, overly surprising. But also, like, over half of my sisters were married at that point, like, and I was still, like, trying to get men to agree to go out with me. Colorado's so. a big Mormon town? Colorado Springs is. Oh, okay. it's very, there's also a lot of, like, non-denominational, like, Christians, like who, like, hey, what religion are you? Like, there's lots of Christian. crazy Christians in Colorado. Wow. Yeah. I guess, I, I think the truth behind what Alex is saying that it's never really too late. It just always feels like it's too late. Oh yeah. When you think like that, though, it's a self fulfilling prophecy, right? I was very surprised mm-hmm. when she told me that she'd come to that decision, and I'm like, you're so goddamn young, <laughs> like so well, talented. I also and, like, thought I had a true problem too, life. because every time I dated someone. I felt like I couldn't breathe until we broke up. So it seemed mm. likely that even if I found someone I wanted to be with, mm. I would in the end sabotage it. Fair enough. We'll be suffocated That's in the entire time. Yeah. Well, let's go to Jeremy Connie. What have oh. you got for us, Jeremy? Well, mine's my monologue is considerably lighter. <laughs> That's good. Um, Should have started with Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I had, since listening to the Your Stories podcast, uh, of episode one, and hearing, and experiencing a lot of culture about the end of the world, I find that a large phenomenon, uh, is that people like to choose their favorite end of the world scenario, and I, I thought that was a bit reckless, uh, because no one's really gone through and analyzed them all and seed would saw which one's the most beneficial and where's the detractions. So I did a cost defendant, cost analysis benefit ratio sort of thing of some of the end of the world scenarios. Of course he did. <laughs> Starting off the realm is zombie apocalypse with a high risk, moderate reward. <laughs> Wait, what? How do any of these end-of-the-world scenarios have rewards? Alex, let him talk. I will get there. (laughs) Sorry. So, I mean, there's obvious risks involved here. You could become undead forever, Zeus. And (laughs) if not that, you could just die from starvation or a zombie attacking you and not making you into a zombie, which I'm still not at all, you know clear about when you turn into a zombie and when you just die by zombie attack. I just know that there's a pretty darn high risk of it. And, you know, that's a risky part, but hey, you get to kill zombies. That's gonna be fun. (laughs) But probably only for a while. (laughs) I mean, I think people choose zombie apocalypse, apocalypse a lot. Because they like the idea that they just get to go willy-nilly killing zombies. But I think they forget that after 50 zombie deaths, you're going to get tired and bored of it. And you're going to have to keep doing it. Because there's a lot of zombies out there. Because it's a zombie apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Next is The Rapture. With a moderate risk, moderate reward rating, <laughs> it is lukewarm across the bat. <laughs> so I don't 
don't know what heaven or God does with agnostics, which is what I am, but I'm guessing it's not barrels of sweet, sweet nectar from Mount Olympus. <laughs> or whatever heaven is these days. I'm just betting that I'll probably have to wander the earth with whoever's left behind, if they leave behind people, which probably wouldn't be too bad. There's probably going to be a lot of stuff left behind. Grab a nice mansion. <laughs> if money is still worth things, I'll grab some money. <laughs> but it might get a little bit lonely, so I gave it a moderate reward. <laughs> <laughs> Next is the sentient robots scenario. <laughs> and that was specifically phrased so I didn't say robot apocalypse. <laughs> But this includes stuff like The Matrix, Terminators. Uh, I gave it a high-risk, low-reward. And I see Alex giving me a big thumbs-up saying he agrees, because there's little in robots getting the ability to think that appeals to me and really should appeal to anybody. Because in either scenario, if you're in The Matrix, unless if you're Neo... I mean, that's great, but that's still a lot of work, and you die. <laughs> and if you're not Neo, you're just some guy in the Matrix being a battery, which, no judgment. I mean, everybody's happy or whatever. They're living their life in the Matrix. That's fine. And if it's Terminators, well, past the third movie, everybody's not happy. <laughs> Except the robots. If they had feelings, they would be gosh darn giddy. <laughs> that they are killing all of us meatbags. Probably. Past that is ASTEROID, in all caps, because it's big, and it comes to hit the Earth. And I gave it an extremely high risk, no reward. Because <laughs> nobody wins in this scenario, and I mean nobody. Everybody's blown up because the asteroid hit the Earth, and the volcanoes are erupting, and the asteroid itself is blowing up because it hit the Earth at a million miles an hour. I mean, even if I lived, I would be eating everything extra crispy for, like, a week <laughs> until I died. So that's sad. But next is global warming. Which I gave a rating of depressing. <laughs> because it's probably going to happen. Oh. But uh, don't worry. There is one end of the world scenario that got a high reward. It is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Hooray! Yay! Low risk, high reward. <laughs> because I assume I will be Arthur Dent. Which I think will be very likely. I will be whisked away into a universe-spanning joyride of oddities and nonsense. Nothing ever seems to go wrong. And the worst thing that happens is I get stranded on a weird planet where buffalo span in and out of the universe, and I try to make the best sandwich ever. <laughs> it's not too shabby. And now is the Q&A portion. <laughs> okay, I actually have two thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My first one is Matrix Loaded, and my second one is Hitchhiker's Guide. Mm -hmm. Hitchhiker's Guide, I would say you would want to be Ford Prefect in that scenario, okay. or Zaphod Beeblebrox. 
Okay. Because Zavon. Arthur seems... Well, I say that. Well, no, I, no, no, no. I mean, I'm agreeing with you. Uh, I want to be Zavon. I'm, I'm, not <laughs> saying, I'm not saying I'm choosing characters. I'm uh-huh. saying the most likely, because we're uh, all Earth that's people. True. It's true. And it just seemed like Arthur... That you know of. <laughs> Arthur was relatively depressed for most of those books. He... He did not like what he encountered. Yeah, but he's not me. That's true. You would totally love it. Okay. I'm in trouble at Second question, and this is just for anyone, really. Because I was reading an article about Alice in Wonderland today, and it referenced White Rabbit by Jefferson Starship. And mm-hmm. that made me think, was I just making this up in my head, or is it true that the White Rabbit in the Matrix that Neo's supposed to follow is that's a true. reference to that yep. song? Yes, that's true. It's a reference well, to Alice in Wonderland. It's a reference to Alice in Wonderland. They're both references yeah. to Alice in Wonderland. Okay. Yeah, he feed your head. Morpheus sure. leaving later. <laughs> you can see how how deep the rabbit Down hole the rabbit goes. Yeah. Uh, he, so I wanted to comment. Um, you were correct about the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> first, uh, first week or whatever, pretty exhilarating. You know, yeah. uh, being yeah. survivor after about a month, it's just another job. Yeah. Daily grind, getting up on the roof. Sniping zombies. Alex knows this from personal experience. I think by the way. Uh, I think people think it because of video games, right? It's like romanticized yeah. that kills yeah. zombies. Cool. I just played in movies. Lollipop Chainsaw mm-hmm. for like a whole week now, and it was just <laughs> a but actually, that's why yeah. I think yeah. I think The Walking Dead is doing a good job of being like, no, seriously, it would suck. It would yeah, suck. it would suck. It would uh, suck. Second, uh, you were also correct. Uh, Robot Uprising, mm-hmm. definitely the worst uh, scenario. Showed off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- those guys are relentless and yeah. smart. They're Although, machines. Yeah. It would be interesting to rate these scenarios in terms of the reward factor if the various apocalypses were avoided, because I feel like the asteroid one would have the highest emotional reward, mm-hmm. for, because there's no way everyone in the world is not going to know that an asteroid is coming. Mm-hmm. Versus in a lot of like robot scenarios, it's like one person who saves us all and most of the people in the world never even knew it was a threat. Oh, okay. You know? So the I happy feel like... To all the end of the yeah, world. If, if the apocalypse is avoided, if Buffy does her job, you know... <laughs> Closes the hell mouth. Right. Well, I mean, and that to me was like the biggest, like... If Michelle tried to... Most of, disappointing thing about Buffy was it was <laughs> like, her. oh, she saved the world how many times? And it's like, most people never even knew it? That's so sad. But if you, I mean, Armageddon, if you avoid the Earth getting hit with a quote-unquote global killer, in the <laughs> words true. of Billy Bob Thornton, <laughs> like, huge rewards. That's true. And uh, I also wanted to suge- uh, submit one to your list. That's what I was actually going for. Uh, the the uh, self-replicating uh, nanobots. I'm gonna oh, get there. God. Is that not... <laughs> Uh, the gray goo, gray goo, the gray goo theory. Basically, uh, I, 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 I'm about to mention next, but it's oh, basically no, 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 that's fine. I don't go into detail, but the basic idea behind it is that um, somebody, so say there's an oil spill, and we program nanobots to clean up the oil spill, but somebody misprograms them, and instead of cleaning up all the oil, they tell the nanobots to clean up all carbon. Right. These what? nanobots will then eat all carbon-based life forms and continue to reproduce until they eat up our atmosphere and everything that we use. Sounds like the replicators from Stargate. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's basically that's a great goose scenario. Yeah. Nice. I'd say nuclear holocaust is the other one. The guy, yeah, the guy who coined Grey zero, goo zero hates that he calls you Grey goo. But yeah, unless you're, uh, you know, Slim Pickens riding the bomb all the way to the, to the bottom. 
So let's take that as a segue for Bobby. Bobby, why don't you tell us about Greg Goo? Jer- no, it's a Jer- Greg Goo is, is but a footnote in this. Uh, Jeremy was Jeremy's was quite uplifting. Uh, this <laughs> will not be. Ah, uh, we're going inside me so Yeah. Um, eschatology, the study of the end of the world, or as Oxford puts it, the Department of Theological Science concerned with the four last things: death, judgment, heaven, and hell is a bit of a hobby of mine. As an atheist, I've always been fascinated with how people of faith see the end of the world happening. Aw, crap. I said the A-word. No, 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 please, don't leave. Come back. I'm not here to cynically pick apart your system of belief with an upturned nose. In fact, you'll find it's quite the opposite. The thing is, I call myself an atheist, not because I had some crisis that resulted in spiritual rejection, or some epiphany where I saw through the lies. I think I'm simply missing that part of your psyche that lets you have faith in something. That lets you simply believe. And to be honest, I've always been a bit jealous. Aside from having times in my life when faith in some higher power would have given me focus and comfort, the main reason behind it is that death, but more importantly the end of the world, is more than just a bit boring for atheists. <laughs> with your way, with um, people with belief, people with faith, with your way, you get an epic confrontation. A final test of man's worth and will. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck dropping bodies from the sky. Dogs and cats living together. Clear manifestations of the sum of all that is good and evil. And the reason for all of this unveiled. There's such purpose there. But most Hindus believe that we're in the era of Kali Yuga, man at his most dishonest and degenerated, the last stage in a cycle that culminates in the universe pulling back in on itself, purifying our actions and extending our lifespans to start anew. Exciting times. All major monotheistic religions culminate in this amazing apex of man's existence, where some force finally triumphs. Someone actually wins. In our lifetime, people have constantly predicted the end of the world. A quick Wikipedia search puts the number at around 41 events in my 29 years. And yeah, we may laugh at most of them, because we're pretty sure they're wrong as soon as we hear them. But they know they're right. And they prepare themselves for the event by finding peace together with the faith that something greater is about to occur. And when tomorrow comes for them and they wake up, they just go on believing. That's a level of trust in something that I will never know, as crazy as it may seem. And what do I have? (laughs) Well, we could blow ourselves to nuclear smithereens, create nanotechnology that erroneously eats our atmosphere, (laughs) or any number of man-made apocalypses that just make us out to be a colossal jerk of an animal that got too big for its environment. Or, in about a million years, the hypergiant star 750 hundred light-years from the sun may go supernova. 1.4 million years, the Gliese 710 will pass within 1.1 light-years of us, possibly colliding with the Oort cloud to shower some comets. 3 billion years, and we could collide with Andromeda. 5 billion years, and our sun goes red giant and swallows the Earth. All of these spectacular, yet commonplace events in our known universe. 
and all an immense amount of lifetimes from even mattering to us now. And in the end, after that, what were we? The product of a chance collision of elements floating in a protoplasmic goo that evolved to have such a higher brain function that we've ascribed a purpose to ourselves? Can all atheists agree that this is an answer that is an immense downer? <laughs> and yet I simply cannot feel that there's more to it than that. I've always needed proof, needed to see in order to believe, in every facet of my life. Everything from what music I like to the validity of my deepest relationship has required thought, research, and proof. Most of the time, I hope my projected outcomes are correct, so that I can have the comfort of having just logic. But for this one thing, this one huge thing, I very much want to be wrong. And as morbid as it may sound, I want to see it happen. To see the end of the world, just to finally know the answer before it's over. Please, prove me wrong. I agree that that stuff is tricky when you're an atheist, uh, contemplating the end. Uh, the, you know, like, in a much smaller sense, if you think about what it means to die when you don't believe in an afterlife, I literally can't comprehend it because you are nothing. You don't... It's just you, d you don't exist. Like, you won't know that you don't exist. All I know is that we're worm food, man. And yeah. that's all I know. It's crazy. <laughs> that's a trip. When, like, 13-year-old me figured that out, I didn't sleep that night, I don't think. Wow. It's, it, took, um, it took my grandma dying for me. And then just, like, seeing her body, not moving anymore. And then my head went, well, that's all she is. <laughs> In a way, it's... I mean, it's comforting, but I partially think that because of probably correct, you know, but it also is very strange to think about. But that's why people are religious, right? Because they like that narrative that tells them there is something bigger. Maybe. I see, remember... The, the, the thing is, like, uh, I... good commentary. A lot of this, a lot of, <laughs> a, a lot of these feelings spawn from the fact that one of, um, one of my major relationships in my life, hi Carolyn, was a girl that I dated for <laughs> most of high school, and, and she was very religious. Um, and we used to talk about this all the time. And it was always this push and pull of how much you value your time on Earth and how much you value your time in whatever afterlife you believe in. Hmm. Um, you guys talked about the afterlife, like going into the afterlife? Yeah. Be because that's... I mean, it's high school, right? Yeah, exactly. It's high school. But, like, that's, you know, that's their goal. They're here spending their time on Earth so that they can be well and then get invited into heaven and live in the glory of God, and become closer to God's plan for them. Whereas me, I value so much my time here on Earth because I think that's all I have. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's very complicated because what you were saying about, like, it, it's comforting for a lot of people of faith to have a narrative. It's also, I, I think the same can be said of, of the other side. I remember getting in a huge argument with my sister, actually, when I was somewhere between high school and college, um, about the existence of the human soul and the concept of the afterlife. And she is very much a scientist, very much um, believes what can be seen and proven. And, and as Alex knows, I don't believe in absolute truth. I don't think that that's um, real. And so she ended up screaming at me in the car. We were on, like, a 12-hour road trip also <laughs> through you, Iowa. Um, what do you mean by absolute truth? 
Um, I mean, I don't think that anything is actually she's, true. She's objective. I, I don't. Okay. Everything is subjective. I don't believe that natural science is any more valid than social science. Like, I, okay. I think that any concept of truth and knowledge is is biased, basically. And, um, I, so she was screaming at me, like, you just believe that because it's comfortable for you, because it makes you feel okay. And I was screamed back at her, like, that's why you believe in science. Science makes you feel comfortable that's and okay. That's pretty much exactly my point. Yeah. I, I'm not, I don't think I'm built for mm-hmm. religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Even though there were times in my life where I seriously wanted to be. Yeah. And just like, well, you were saying, like, that recognizing that you don't think there is an afterlife doesn't necessarily make you feel that good. I think a lot of people of faith struggle with what they're supposed to be doing with their lives if they believe in an afterlife, too. And I'm not, like, I'm not pushing. I'm just saying it's interesting to me because I think that the big questions, both sides have an incredibly difficult time, even when they know what they believe. Reconciling that with, like, the way you feel is not great. I would I would be very pleased if um, there's like a third option. Like we die and we find out it's not God, but there is something uh, that's like some some third thing. Spaghetti, that we, spaghetti monster? No, not even. <laughs> see, even that's like a deity. Like mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like it's just something that we haven't considered. Like your re- uh, reincarnation, even, like, or is even that too? Maybe re- I mean reincarnation's kind of in that same boat of like as a third option. But like even something like just way goofier than that. And then that's awesome. I've not seen any proof of that whatsoever. No, no, I don't think. And and that's the, like that's what I can't yeah. reconcile. Yeah. I'd be very pleased if like I died and I woke up in an ice cube tray or something like that. I yeah. and, uh, think oh, that would be that fun. Like, like the Men in Black's version of the universe, where things are just like bent around, or yeah, or whatever, and just like I'm like, oh, we were all wrong. But that's like what I remember about the, my poli sci class I took my freshman year of college was like uh, when Socrates was condemned to die and like all of his scholars were all crying over him or whatever and he's like, what are you guys crying about? I'm about to find the answer to what we've been wondering for that I've been wondering about for my entire life. So this and, and that's that worried that's about my it. thing about the apocalypse is that mm-hmm. I'd like to not have to die. Mm-hmm. I, I, to to know that, to and know I think the I think being present at the end of the world, you know, like Pat Oswalt said, I want to die in the fucking apocalypse in the coolest way possible. Mm-hmm. I think that's really the only way to know before you die. But like, talk yeah. about a spoiler, you know? Oh shit! Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a whole lot I like to say because this gets kind of at the heart of my beliefs. But I think I'll, I'll leave the closing remarks to Mr. Ed Kowalczyk of uh, the band Live. Mm-hmm. Even scientists say everything is just light, not created, destroyed, but eternally bright. Mm-hmm. He, of course, has a PhD in nothing. <laughs> but that is a cool song. Uh, so before I pass it to Julie, I, I want to point out that I just noticed, and this is fantastic, that everyone has a different method of reciting their stories. Allison's was mm-hmm. off the cuff. Jeremy typed his out and printed it. Bobby's is on his uh, his what, netbook. Yep. And Julie has written hers in a journal. It is a loose outline. Julie has outlined hers in a journal. And that's pretty much the way we run our company. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, Of course, everything I'm saying is being fed to me via satellite. (laughs) (laughs) By Ed Kowalczyk. (laughs) (laughs) That would be 
be, <laughs> was it that would make me. Us spin the sun. Okay, sorry. <laughs> that'd be really that'd be great. I want that to be true. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, lightning <laughs> crashes. Uh, <laughs> Julie, please. All right. Well, okay. So when this theme came up, there was pretty much only one story I could find it in my heart to tell because um, I think the maybe single phrase I've heard my mom say to me the most times in my life is, it's not the end of the world. Um, because I was a huge, huge worrier as a kid. Like, you think I worry now? Um, <laughs> I was <laughs> I was the most anxious child that maybe ever existed. Um, and just like my entire childhood, I think, probably consisted of my mom reassuring me of stuff. Um that was not nearly as imminent as I thought it was. So just, like, I think any time there was any sort of, like, safety awareness day at school was probably the biggest nightmare for her. Um, <laughs> every, time, <laughs> every time I learned a new piece of information about anything, I would come home with just, like, worst-case scenarios, like, spouting out of me. Um, you know, like, oh, no, fire hazard day. We learned about power lines. We learned one day the sun was going to go out. Uh, <laughs> just whatever the information was, uh, she would, you know, she would have to come up with some way to make it seem like it wasn't that imminent or, uh, you know, she'd inevitably end up saying it's not the end of the world. And then that would get me thinking about the end of the world, which scared me, like, more than anything <laughs> else. Um these guys know that I uh, I saw the movie Armageddon for the first time as we were preparing to start this process because I refused to watch or even listen to a, a synopsis of the plot of anything uh, relating to an end of the world story when I was a kid. Um, and it's uh, it's th- th- I've gotten better. <laughs> I made it through the movie and I didn't have nightmares uh, when we watched it. But I still um, I still have tendencies toward this uh, today. I'm feeling a little bit under the weather today, and I was just sitting at work uh, coming up with a list in my head of every terminal disease I could have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> just trying to figure out what I would do first when I was diagnosed with something awful. Um, well, you've never done this? <laughs> I totally do that. Okay. I, I've okay. done it, but I wouldn't say often. <laughs> yeah, I This don't... is normal behavior. <laughs> Uh, totally. A little Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're in a room of non-judging. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, yeah. No one read the thing where we say we don't put anybody down at Nerd Alone. Yeah. Alex, we dropped the ball on that one. But uh, the, the, I think probably the, the most definitive moment in this, uh, in this process of, of fear was when in second, my second grade class, when somehow it came up what carbon monoxide was. Um, which to a kid who's never heard of it is like the scariest thing. It's like this odorless, undetectable, you can't see it, you can't smell it, whatever substance that just kills you. Um, and so I came home just panicking about carbon monoxide and my, my parents tried to reassure me that, you know, it's not very common and you would have to put the car in the garage with the door closed even to, to, you know, to have a problem with it, and then like two weeks later, my grandparents had carbon monoxide poisoning in their house, uh, and they were fine. Um, <laughs> but uh, when we got the uh, so immediately, like right after I learned what this was, they uh, they they were affected by it, and we got these in response to that. In our house, we got these the, the monitors which we hadn't had before uh, that have a little digital readout of what your carbon monoxide level is, and so um, and so that was that was a new fascination for me. Um, as a seven-year-old, and so I would, I would like systematically check this, uh, check this detector every night before I went to bed, and like it was in my parents' little hallway before their bedroom, and so I, they, I, you know, 
come in there in the middle of the night and wake them up because I was panicking and they would they would I would sneak in there and look at the detector whatever and um and this just this all fueled into my anxiety um and and I I just I, there were so many things and I I guess at some point my parents ended up actually taking me to um uh some kind of child psychologist um and I was like eight years old. I would assume this had to do with some sort of anxiety. Um, and I say I, I, I never really understood like why I was going or whatever. Just that it was like I, they took me out of school to go, and it was next door to a Burger King, and um, I would go to this <laughs> the office. Import, and, the important facts. And there were like toys in I'm the room. I'm depressed when I go to Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all are. Uh, but but, um, but I I never like I it was just sort of there, and I still I still to this day don't know if I I'm, I can't really get any information about out of my mom about why I was there, and I, I don't know if I was diagnosed with some like junior size anxiety disorder or whatever. But um, but one thing that she said to me after I'd been going for a little while was, well, uh, you know, there's carbon monoxide in the air every day. It comes out of the car exhaust. Oh pipes. no. <laughs> uh, and and it goes out into the air, and so you're breathing it in every single day, and, and you're still alive, and. First, I considered how I was going to go through the rest of my life, like never breathing again. <laughs> um, but after a certain period of time, I realized that uh, that that's actually true, and that this this harmful substance in small quantities is just around us every day in the air. Um, and that's you know when you kind of get down to thinking about the world ending, that's that's sort of what it is. Is that every day there's these small things that are happening, and everything in the world is harmful for us in some way. Um, and these these tiny things were a step closer to global warming, rating depressing every single day. Um, <laughs> but we keep living through it, and and it's it's a small part in a larger whole of things that aren't bad. How do you feel about flying, Julie? Sincere question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> actually, that's funny. That's also something that used to absolutely terrify me uh, as a kid, and now I am okay with it. <laughs> I still hate as it. I do too. I can't breathe it. under people's air oh, for really? that long. Honestly, what? I like, I do not think it's an accident. Imagine me sitting still in a cylinder mm-hmm. flying through the air for hours. I, I tweeted but, this as a joke, I but I don't, I don't no? think this is an accident. I think you Super can map jittery. the wow, rise yeah. of existential philosophy and commercial airline flights. <laughs> they kind of come about at the same time, and I doubt <laughs> that is a mistake. I mm-hmm. love Say Louis C.K.'s take on it, though. Have mm-hmm. you ever heard his stand up about how he hates hearing people complain about airlines about flights where he's because like because it's a freaking like, miracle oh, yeah, yeah. we sat on we sat on the oh, tarmac yeah. for 45 minutes he's like and then were you lifted in the air and flew through it while sitting on a chair cuz that's magic yeah but if you watch i mean if you watch louis you saw that episode where him and that huge burly man have that near death experience on the plane yeah. and then just get off the plane like yep all right Nice day. Yeah. See, now, Julie, was your family one of those families that had a fire emergency plan? Because my family was not, and I kept trying to insist that we have one because I also <laughs> am a big worrier and an extreme follower of rules. Oh, yeah, me too. But you know what? We didn't. It's weird because we didn't have a fire emergency plan yeah, or anything yeah. like that. But my mom, when I was a kid and I would ride in it, when I was like a young enough kid to have a car seat and I would ride in other people's cars, she would make them take our car seat. My mom is like the same way. When I rode in a van for a mission trip, she was like, you have to make sure that you are not sitting in the middle seat or in the front seat. You have to sit in the back seat near the back window because that is the seat least likely for someone to die in. Oh my God, my mom still gets mad at me if I drive in flip-flops. 
(laughs) (laughs) As a child, when I insisted on us having a fire emergency plan, my mom was like, we don't need one of those. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, my dragon flip-flops now. I still have to take a second pair of shoes out of the house just to make her think I'm not driving with flip-flops. It's just easier. (laughs) (laughs) But you're still driving flip-flops? Nice. I didn't want to interject in the middle of your monologue, but I know that you are a warrior and a little bit of a hypochondriac, and... uh, like, you should just uh, make sure your web browser blocks web, WebMD. WebMD, Oh, yeah. I've, I've yeah. long been banned, personally banned by myself from WebMD. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. shit. You yeah. Do not buy a copy of Our Bodies Ourselves, either, because you will think you have every lady disease ever known. <laughs> <laughs> been there, sister. <laughs> every lady disease. And now class will be learning about ladies. I had oh. really a really bad flu one summer, and I convinced myself that I had toxic shock syndrome. Oh. I was, like, asking everyone who would come visit me if uh, if they thought my hands looked sunburned, because that's, like, a symptom of TSS. I was like, do my palms look sunburned to you? I knew a girl who had that. It's scary stuff. It's, like, so uncommon, but I knew a girl yeah. who had it in high school. Yeah. I got really into trauma movies one summer. I had Toxic Avenger Syndrome. There you go. Ah! <laughs> Jokes. I think uh, we're about to close this up. So, guys, uh, when does your show open? Where does it open? How can we get tickets? Uh, how many cute half elves are there in it, <laughs> Allison? Well, I am involved in it, so at least one, um, oh, and Julie, so at least two. Um, but I can confirm they're half elf. <laughs> but, but which half? In all seriousness, though, folks, um, our show runs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. at Chemically Imbalanced Comedy Theater on Irving Park Road. It opens September 16th and runs through September 12th. September 12th and runs through October 18th. 18th. Um, and you can get tickets by calling CSP. Uh, go to our Facebook page at Corez Theater and subscribe to us. We'll be giving out ticket information as we get it. Yes. We will be a, I believe we'll have tickets available through our CIC's website, but we'll be controlling the tickets ourselves. And this is yeah. a Thursday night show? Wednesday night. Wednesday night show. Okay, Wednesday and show. how much will tickets be? $10. And if I buy a ticket, will you sign it for me? Uh, absolutely. Everybody in the, in the cast and crew. Yeah. I don't want one person, though. I, won't, I don't know who, I just know there's one person in the cast. I prefer to leave it incomplete. That's my neuroses. Nice. <laughs> I mean, should we name off the people in the cast? Yeah, I think Let's we represent should. the cast and everything. Yeah. Sure. Uh, all right, guys. Yeah. Who are your homies? Let's let's give some love to our homies. Our homies' names are Noah Applebaum, Kyle Cannon, Michael Grush, Sarah Kaplan, Jessica Kent, Jessica Landis, Gary Pascal, and Eddie Wolf. I didn't know Sarah Kaplan was in this. I I love Sarah and her husband Zach. That's awesome. Well, guys, I know you can't see this at home, but we just poured one out for our homies. Now, unfortunately, Allison and Alex's floor is just disgusting. Thanks, guys. Uh, We have to move. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, thank you all for listening. Hey, if you like this format, I wouldn't be opposed to doing it some more. So uh, let us know on the Nerdalogs Facebook page, which just search Nerdalogs on Facebook, or go to nerdalogs.com, or comment on this post at podbean. Nope. At yourstories.podbean.com. Nice. Thank you very much, guys. Let Eric in the home.
inside Grab the spot under the stairs The barricaded mentos Rig the doorknob shut with chairs
I thought you were going to hold out the note and I would do the, the backing, but... The Nerdalogs Present Your Stories is sponsored by the Chicago sketch comedy troupe The Nerdalogs and is recorded the third Sunday of every month at the Upstairs Gallery in Chicago, 6219 North Park Street. The stories you hear have been prepared and presented by the speakers on a volunteer basis. Your Stories is recorded and co-produced by Sean Patrick Boyle. Our theme song comes from the band State Shirt. For more information on the Nerdalogs, your stories, and more, go to www.nerdalogs.com.